as I introduced last week, the major teaching portion of what Jesus did during that last week has now ended, and the events that will lead to both his crucifixion and his resurrection now begin to take place. And so the pace kind of focuses now on these few days uh, of that time. So let's pray together and ask that God would help us in this very holy, sort of sacred theme that we're taking up, that God would be with us. Let's pray. Father, we help, pray that you will help us. Father, we long to, to just see these passages afresh and anew, to enter into the sufferings of our dear Savior, your Son, and to recognize all that is being done here, the majesty of it, the grandeur, the beauty, the grace, and then recognize how personally connected and involved we are in this. Father, help us, we pray. Help us by the power of teaching of ministry of your Holy Spirit. Go beyond even our ability to think and to reason and to grasp. Give us, we pray, spiritual insight and light and write these things upon our heart. Help us, we pray, Father. We just praise you and we thank you for the rich salvation that we have. Help us to just grasp a little deeper this day how rich we actually are in Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. A major part of Jesus' teaching and what he was doing was to keep people focused on the most important things in life. It is so easy for us to lose focus. We're busy. We have certain things that we must attend to. We, we, we're, we're living on this earth. We're mortal beings. We have to eat. We need to get jobs and that. And it's very easy for us to become so quickly distracted from basically the big issues as to why we're here, who we are. And so Jesus would oftentimes just teach on this, that as, as he said to the devil, man does not live by bread alone. Uh, Jesus will say, what does it avail a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? He says, beware of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He tells us, stop worrying, stop worrying. Seek first the kingdom of God. Your father will feed you and clothe you. Seek first the kingdom. Jesus told Martha, 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 you're, you're so concerned for so many things, but Mary has chosen the one thing. There's one thing needful. Jesus is constantly trying to get us to understand and to focus. And these passages here will certainly do that. It will help us to focus. And one of the things that we should be focused on in life, one of the most important issues and questions, the most important issue and question in many ways in your life is this. What is my relationship to Christ? How am I related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's absolutely essential. In, in one sense, our whole lives can be summed up in this. What is my relationship to Christ? And all of eternity, whether I go to heaven or hell, is determined by this. What is my relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, in this text, you're going to see a lot of people, and you're going to see how they're relating to Jesus. And one of the things that you're going to see in this text is one of the most beautiful, beautiful examples of, of love for Jesus Christ in this text. But another thing that you're going to see in this text is the most horrible thing that a person can say about another person. And Jesus is going to say this. 
the most horrible thing that could be said about a person is going to be in this text. So this is a very rich text, and one of the reasons why when I started the book of Matthew, I said we're going to try to take it in larger sections than what I usually preach through, and I pretty much held to that, although sometimes we slowed down and really took apart a text. But I wanted you to see how, how the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew. There's themes here. And so in this one, you're going to see the, the major contrast between this dear woman and this awful apostle, okay? And we're going to see this in this text, all right? Because Judas is an apostle, and we're going to look at that. So let's just go down through this text systematically and look at it. And it begins with Jesus saying something and Jesus uh, it, revealing this. Look at verse 26. I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 26, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. At this point, Jesus is living under the darkness of the shadow of the cross. The shadow of the cross is now darkening everything in his life. And I want you to just pause for a minute and think about this. Imagine what it would be like to be expecting within the next few days that you will be executed. Imagine what that would be like. It's actually hard to imagine what that would be like. Uh, those who, uh, there's actually been some people that have been uh, brought up to being executed, firing squad, and then uh, they said no, and they, let, they set them free. But they went up to that very, very moment. Uh, the, the, the author Dostoevsky was one of them, and he wrote about this in a book. And he said that the most horrible death that a person can die is execution. Because if you're sick or you're being treated, there's always the hope that you're going to get better, and you don't know when, and maybe this is going to take you, but maybe not today. Whereas an execution is this day, this hour, your life will end. And he, he was talking about, because he was one of these people that was brought before a firing squad and then was released. And, and, and this is what Jesus, now think about it. Jesus is dealing with this right now. This is going to overshadow everything that Jesus is doing right now. He's telling them, in a few days, I'm going to be crucified. Now, Jesus is not going to be executed by lethal injection. That's a, that's a, the worst about that is that there's a, a needle that goes in your arm. And once that needle goes in your arm, then a sedative goes in your arm, and other things go in your arm. You, you put to sleep, and then you die. He's not going to get that. Jesus is not even going to be hung, where you will have a noose put around your neck, and then you will drop, and you will die relatively instantly. Jesus is not going to be shot by a firing squad. Those would all be a blessing. Jesus is going to be executed in a way that it was designed by the Romans to be so horrific to extend uh, uh, suffering and to extend death as long as possible, to execute as much pain and humiliation and agony in order to make a point about the Roman government. That's what crucifixion was. And he's living under the shadow of that. And let me ask you this. What do you think you would be like if right now you thought or you knew that in a couple days you were going to be executed in such a horrible way. What would you be like? I'd be a basket case. I'm going to tell you right now, I'd be a basket case. I, I couldn't, I, I would have a hard time just keeping my thoughts. I would be shaking. I would be nervous. I would be a basket case. And that's an important point because I want you to watch, not only in this chapter, but in the chapters ahead, I want you to watch Jesus in light of the fact that this shadow is over him. Because you're going to see something in Jesus. You're going to see a composure. You're going to see a strength. 
You're going to see a determination. Jesus could have taken off at this point. He could have just taken off, gone to Galilee, and gone back to being a builder and, and, and such, and gotten himself in that little podunk Nazareth and, and, and dropped out of the scene. He's determined that this is going to he's, he's going to obey his father. You're going to see a determination. You're going to see a love that Jesus is going to have for others. You're going to see a concern for others. And, and I want you to think about that. When we get to the application, I'm going to come back to that because I think that's extremely important. But then let's look at the next section. I've entitled it the elitist enemies, the elitist enemies. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. See, these people are elitists. Every culture, every society has elitists. We have them today. These people are elitists. They think that they know better than the common man. They think that they have greater insight than the common man. And they need to take charge and save the common man for himself. Why? Because the common man, and by the way, Jerusalem is packed at this point because the Passover has come. Jerusalem has come from, uh, it, it, there, there's estimates that it, it, it goes from about 100,000 to 250,000 uh, normally to, to over a million now because the Passover has come. It's packed. The triumphal entry just took place. People were, were, were cheering Jesus' arrival. Crowds of people were, were with Jesus while he was in the temple and such like that. The common people get Jesus. They see him. They know him. That's why Jesus said that the tax collectors and sinners were closer to the kingdom of God than these elitist uh, leaders. And so these elitists, they must do stuff by trickery here. They must be careful because they know better than the vast majority of people. And they're prepared now to destroy Jesus. And we still have that today. We still have elitist leaders today who see Jesus and his followers as disruptive and people who are on the wrong side of history. And you can just, I just want you to see Jesus was dealing with that as well. And then in verse 6, we have this very sensitive follower of Jesus. Now, before we read this, Dixie's already read it. You're familiar with it. Let me give you a little bit of background and set the stage here. Because this is a place where the other gospel writers will help to fill out the picture for us, okay? This is in the town of, this takes place in the town of Bethany. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. You can walk from Bethany into Jerusalem. And Jesus is spending the nights in Bethany. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live in Bethany. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead there. Lazarus is, is around there in Bethany. And here, this meal is going to be a meal that is hosted at a house of a man named Simon the leper. Okay, look at verse 6. And then Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. It's pretty much assumed that Simon was a leper, that Jesus healed. He is hosting Jesus there. Now, what we know from the other gospel writers were Jesus is present, Simon is present, the 12 disciples are present, Lazarus is present at this meal, John tells us. Martha is once again serving, so many of the women of Bethany have gathered together to serve this banquet of these people that are there. And that this woman that is identified simply as a woman, she's not named in the book of Matthew, is John identifies her as Mary. This is Mary who comes in, and she brings this jar, okay? Now, notice what it says. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask 
a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, what is happening? Now, an alabaster flask, alabaster is a type of gypsum, it's a type of stone. This is a very uh, ornate flask. It is filled with a fragrant oil, and other gospel writers identify this as spikenard or nard. And that is a, an oil that actually is made, it's made out of a plant that grows in India and, in the, and originally in the Himalayan mountains. So this, this, this spice brought and then, and then rendered down into this oil, it was extremely expensive, extremely expensive. She actually has a large amount, one of the gospel writers tells us, she has almost a pound of this stuff, and it's very costly. In fact, we're told in John that this is 300 denarii, which would be a denarii being what a laborer makes in one day. This is a year's salary. This is a year's salary. Let's put it at $30,000, $40,000 here. Um, this is extremely valuable, extremely important thing. This probably represented her life savings and her retirement and everything all put together. This was Mary's, in a sense, her... Her, her future, her hope, her well-being. Her, we have no sense that Mary is married. We have no sense she has children. She has this thing, and she has this, this is her investment. People didn't keep wealth in coins back then, by the way. It, they usually purchased things and things like that. That's how they had them. So she takes this, this, this ointment, and she decides that at this moment, She's going to break this. These flasks had to be broken. The top was a narrow spout. It was cracked. It was broken. And she was going to pour this out. And so she pours this fragrant oil out upon Jesus. And she anoints him with this oil. The whole building, the whole house must have smelled amazingly beautiful. And she, and she was there and she was doing this. And this, she was pouring out her life savings, pouring out everything that she owned, which was a value upon Jesus. Pouring out her, and in a sense, pouring out her love upon him. Pouring out her gratitude for who he is. This was an act of worship. This was a deep and beautiful and moving and whole-souled, whole-person act of worship. It's beautiful. It's literally beautiful. It's an absolutely beautiful moment. And there's more to it than this. And we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But before we do... We have to look at the disciples' reaction. Look at verse 8. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant. Now, this is a very powerful word. It's furious. They were furious. This word is only used three or more times in the New Testament. Once, when the disciples found out that James and John were trying to jockey for position, they were furious. The so second time was when the Pharisees and heard the children singing after the triumphal entry, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is David. They were furious that people were talking like this. And then this word is only used once of Jesus. It was used of Jesus when they were taking and not allowing the parents to bring the little children to Jesus. He was furious. And he said, no, 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 bring them, bring them here. Well, here these disciples are furious. They're indignant. And what are they indignant about? Look at verse 8 saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Now let's pause here for a second and give them their due. Okay? Number one, 
There was such an emphasis in Jesus's ministry and in his kingdom, this upside down kingdom we've been talking about. There's such an emphasis of caring for the needy, caring for the poor, helping people who needed help. You know, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He tells the story of people and he, he urged his people to love and to love. And, and they got it. They, they, they apparently got it. Secondly, what did we just study last week? What did Matthew 25 say? He says that the king will stand there and said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was, in, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was naked and you gave me clothing. These guys are trying to follow up an application of the sermon that they just heard. So I'm giving them, I'm giving them all kinds of, of, of flack, uh, a break here, okay? I don't want to give them a whole lot of flack yet. But nevertheless, at this point, these guys are, are furious and they're arguing and they're fighting, okay? But at this point... I feel it. this is what's important here. They're missing something. They're missing, they're missing something very, very important. And she's not missing it. She's not missing it, okay? Jesus is sitting there under the weight of the shadow of the cross and of the whipping and beating and crucifixion and death. He's a man soon to be executed. He's preoccupied, as it were, with death. And they don't get it. They start an argument. They start a fight. And I think at this point, this is what was missing in them, but Mary picked up on it. Mary has a deeper insight into what's going on here. Mary resonated with Jesus. Mary saw something different in Jesus that she, she saw the weight. She saw the burden. She saw and she heard the words. She picked up on what he was saying. And literally Jesus says, she's anointing me for death. She's anointing me for death. All right, let's go on. Jesus says, so then Jesus speaks. But when he was aware of it, what they were saying, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good thing for me. This isn't a, just a bad waste of money. This was a good thing for me. Why? For you will have the, you have the poor with you always. Now let's pause here. Jesus is not saying that in sort of a callous way. Eh, there'll always be poor people. He's not saying that at all. In fact, he's quoting the Bible at this point. Unfortunately, the New King James writers didn't pick this. Uh, uh, editors didn't pick this up. But he's quoting the Bible at this point. And when you read the whole verse that he brought to their mind. He understood that he was not dismissing the care for the poor. He was concerned about the poor. In Deuteronomy 15, 11, this is where Jesus uh, is actually quoting. It says this, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide, dear brother, and to your poor and your needy in your land. This Jesus is actually quoting this Deuteronomy 15 passage. But nevertheless, Jesus is focusing now on himself and his death. You will always have the poor with you. Help them, please. I urge you, by all means, continue to help them. But this is a special moment. This is a special time. And this is, in a sense, preparing for my departure. But you, me, he goes on to say, you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. See, Jesus preoccupied with his death. At this point, Jesus is in the height of his success. Jerusalem is full of people. Hosanna, king. They're hanging on his every word. He's at the height of his success. 
This is, and Jesus is overwhelmed with this sense of his own death. Mary keys into it, and he said, this oil is the oil anointing me for burial. Now, it's very interesting. Jesus, when the people died back then, they took their bodies, cleaned them. They anointed them with these oils. They put in urgents and, and, and such like that, wrapped them up, and that's, and that's how they buried them. Jesus gets sort of a quick treatment of that. When he dies, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrap him quickly up and, and, and get him in the tomb because the sun was going down and such, and the Sabbath was coming. And, and then these women went with, with large amounts of that to his, to his tomb on Sunday, and it's empty. So this is actually Jesus' true anointing and burial, for burial. That's what Jesus is saying here. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. And assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And it is. It's told in each of the gospels. I'm telling it today. And this is uh, the year 2022. The disciples were indignant, but one was particularly indignant. And that was Judas. John tells us that Judas actually took the leadership in, in, in arguing and, and in bringing forward this indignation. It was Judas who said, wait a minute. This money should have been spent for the poor. This thing should have been sold. That $30,000 should have gone into the coffer, and we should have distributed that out to the poor. And in John chapter 12, verse 6, after he said that, John says this. He puts this in his gospel. This, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used it to take what was put in it. This is who this man was. This was an awful, wicked man. So then Judas leaves and he, he, from that banquet and he goes directly to the elitists and he offers them Jesus. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. John, Jesus, uh, Judas gets very angry. He, he, then, he then says, This is the last straw. This is the last straw. And he turns on Jesus. And he goes to these guys and he says, listen, I give you Jesus, what do you give me? I give you Jesus, what do you give me? It's that crass. It's that crass. See, this man's heart turned in some way. His heart turned on Jesus. Jesus didn't meet his expectations. He came to not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He may have had political goals. Jesus didn't meet those political goals. And, and in the end, he came down to his own covetousness. What can I get out of this? He was stealing money from the thing. I, it's, all, it's every man for himself. That's what it's about. And Judas, in his wickedness, in his turning from all of that light and all of that truth, Judas, in his desire then to just be taken over by his sins of greed and covetousness, he opened himself up, as it were, to increasing evil in his own life, his remaining sin taking him over more and more and more. And what happens? Oh, it's horrible what happens. John chapter 13 and verse 27, John puts it this way. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. Luke tells it this way. Luke 22, 3. Then Satan entered entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Isn't that kind of chill? It give you chills? It doesn't even say a demon entered him. 
Satan took charge of this one because he was so incredibly important. So Satan has entered Judas. Now the Passover feast. Judas still stays under radar. Judas goes back, filters back into the uh, with the apostles, filters back in following Jesus. He's one of the inner circle around Jesus, and now they have the Passover. Look verse 17. Now on the first day of the feast of the Passover bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the 12. Now as they were eating, he said, assuredly I say to you that one of you will betray me. So he announces that. One of you men here are going, is going to betray me. Now the response of the 11 is this, and they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to himself, Lord, is it I? They were exceedingly sorrowful. One of us is going to betray him. Oh, no. Is it me? Is it me? I actually appreciate that response. Number one, there's a humility to that response. These were 11 very godly men, by the way. There was a humility to that response. But there's something sinister behind that response. And that was that Judas was very good at being the hypocrite. They didn't say, oh, yeah, well, Lord, we know exactly who you're doing. They didn't, they didn't do that. They are like, Lord, really? Somebody's going to be true. Who? Me? And then it says this, and Jesus, and he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man will indeed, now here's a very important verse. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. The Son of Man indeed goes just as, I am I'm going to be crucified. I am the Lamb of God who, who's laying down my life for the sins of the world. I am the Lamb. I am the sacrifice. It has been prophesied. I am the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I am the one who's going to give his life for the many. I have been sent. I have been called. The word of God is prepared. You have been prepared since time began, began, and the word has been written down. You've been prepared for this moment of the sacrifice of the Son of Man as a substitutionary atonement for the life of sinners. You've been prepared for that. I'm going as it has been written. My death has meaning, purpose, fulfillment of, of, of astronomical and infinite value. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And then come the worst, most horrible thing that can ever be said about a person. It would have been good for that man if he had not been Then Judas, who was betraying him. That means the, the, the plot is going on right now. Answered and said, not, look at verse 22, Lord, is it I? Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it. Now, what does that mean? You have said it. You might have run across this in other gospel writers where gospel, other parts of the gospel, it is as you say, rather than, why don't you say straightforward yes? Well, this actually is a yes, and it's straightforward, but there's also an ambiguity to it, okay? This, this discussion that they had 
seems to have been almost private. You know, Judas is, is, is having this private with him. Listen to how uh, D.A. Carson writes in his commentary. He says, Jesus' response is identical in the Greek to that of verse 64. Jesus uses this same phrase when he's asked about his identity. It is affirmative, but depends somewhat on the strong, on the spoken intonations for its full force. It could be taken to mean, you have said it, not I. And I think that's what this actually means. You have said it, not I. Yet, in fact, it is enough of an affirmative to give Judas a jolt without removing all ambiguity from the ears of the other disciples. Carson is saying that he feels at this point that he's saying to Judas, yes, you are. It's what you just said, yes. But he said it in an ambiguous way that the other disciples may not have caught on because he want, Because I'll tell you why. If you would have said, yeah, Judas, you're going to betray me, you all know Peter, don't you? He'd have pummeled him at that point. You know, and no, no, Jesus needs Judas to go out and do his thing. And that's why he says you go and do quickly in one of the other, in the other things. So this is, this is the passage. What an amazing passage. This beautiful woman doing this wonderful thing, beautiful love for Jesus and this wicked betrayer. These, these elitist men who are going to know better than the, than the common man. And, and, and then these disciples who are trying to piece this whole thing together and are with him. They're with him. So by way of application, I, I want to just offer you three statements. And I'm going to use them in the first person. But I, I want to offer you three statements that I think, that I, that basically, I applied this to myself in, the, in, in, in my study. And these are the three statements. I'm going to open them up just a little bit. But here's the three statements. I want to be like Mary. Number two, I need Jesus' strength. And number three, I will learn from Judas's tragedy. I want to be Mary. I want to be like Mary. I need Jesus' strength, and I will learn from Judas's tragedy. I want to be like Mary. <laughs> Man, I look at this text, and I just want to weep. I want to be like Mary. Jesus Christ is everything to us, dear ones. He's everything. He's our Savior and our friend and our shepherd and our high priest and the Lamb. He's given us everything. He's given us himself. And here she is just pouring out her heart, pouring out her wealth, standing and pouring out. And everybody else in that place seems to be a little bit disjointed as to what's going on in Jesus' life and the burden and the broken, uh, the, the, the shadow of the cross almost crushing this man. She picks up on it. She goes and gets her alabaster jug. She goes and gets her greatest possession. She pours this out on him and she anoints him and she's rubbing this upon his head and this fragrance is going up. And this is pure love, great love. This is love that says, I love you more than anything else. Nothing is valuable to me compared to you. Nothing means anything to me. And at this moment in your pain and in your agony, and I notice there's something so heavy on your soul here. And what a comfort this must have been to Jesus. Somebody gets me. I'm being, I'm going to be hustled off into, an, into a, a borrowed tomb soon. And I've been properly anointed. What a moment of just beautiful fragrance, beautiful love, 
beautiful commitment, beautiful sensitivity to Jesus. Let me ask you this. Are you and I sensitive to Jesus? What do, what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. Do you love him so much that you see all of life through how it reflects him? How it reflects him? How will it bring glory or dishonor to him? How will it further his kingdom? How can I serve you? How can I please you? How can I make you smile for all that you have done for me? Dear friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be so attached, so attached to him. I love my wife. I would die for my wife. Some bad guy comes in my house. I'm pushing my wife under the bed and I'm taking the bullet because I love her and I won't even think about that. Is that how we think of Jesus and what he means to us? Is that attachment so great? That's what it means to be a disciple. I'm his bondservant. I'm for his glory. I live for him. He's my life. Death is gain because I'll go and be with him. Dear ones, that's what I want to be a Mary. That's my application. I want to be a Mary. My second application is this. I need Jesus' strength. I need Jesus' strength. I'm getting old, folks. And it hurts to get old. You get aches and pains. It hurts. Little things hurt you. Challenges, and you don't have the strength that you used to have. You don't have the energy you used to have. I used to be Superman. I could do anything. I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like a frail old man. And death is soon coming. And all of that makes me look at Jesus and say, man, I need this strength. Look at this man. Watch Jesus in this passage and in the closing passages of this scripture. Like I said before, here's a man who's going to die in days. And he's a healthy 33-year-old man. He's healthy and strong. It's almost, you know, if, if I were to get cancer and die now, I'm like 66. Okay, like, yeah, that makes sense. If I were 36 and I was cancer and I'd be like, whoa, wait a minute. No, I've got too much. I was super Todd back then. He's Superman in this sense. He's strong. He's, he's a vibrant carpenter, for goodness sakes. And he's about to die. But he has a composure. He has a determination, like I said. He has a bravery. He has a courage. And what you see in this man, and this God-man, is that he still has a concern for others. Like, I'd be sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to die, what? And then this oil comes on my head, and then these guys get all upset. And also, but he's sensitive to what's going on here. Wait a minute, whoa, what are you doing? Whoa, she's done a wonderful thing. She's done a beautiful thing here. He organizes where they're going to have the Passover. I'd be like, hey, guys, I don't care where we eat. You know, Passover, Passover. When's the, when's the Passover? I'd be, I'd be half passing out thinking I'm going to die soon. He's, he's composed. He's strong. He bears faithful witness during his trial. He's whipped and beaten. And while he's dragging the cross up to the, up the hill where he is going to die, women are crying. And Luke tells us, he turns to him and says, women, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. If this is what they do when it's green, what are you going to imagine it's going to do when, it, when it's all dry and dusty? 
He's, he gets, these men grab him and throw him down upon a cross and hold him down and nail him down and hang him up and drop him in the thing. And then they stripped his clothes off and now they're gambling for them. And the Pharisees are over here laughing and cheering and chanting, where was this man? Now where is his God at right now? And Jesus is hanging there and he says, oh, Father, these poor people, they don't realize what they've done. They don't realize they're executing your own son. Oh, Father, forgive them. What? I need this strength. I need this strength because I'm a coward. I need this strength because I'm weak. I need this strength because I get a little toothache or a little head cold, and I feel like the world's falling apart. Can you imagine when I'm struggling with my last illness unto death? I need him. I need him in life. I need him. I need his strength. And that is what Paul gets at when Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, if you learn through the power of the Holy Spirit and through that unique union with Christ that we have, if you learn to gain strength from him so that no matter what you face, Christ is present, Christ's strength and power is there, and he enables you to get through that day to endure. His presence is there to comfort you and guide you. He is there, and peace that passes understanding comes upon you. That is the strength of Christ. We need that. That's why my application is when I see Jesus going through, I say, I need you. I'll never be this, but by you I can. When Paul was told that he would have an incurable disease that would hamper him for the rest of his life, and yet he still had to be the Gentile to uh, the, the apostle to the Gentiles and go out in the world and keep preaching the gospel until he was dead. When Paul, when that Paul was faced with that, he said, "No, Lord, no, no, take this disease from me, take this sickness from me, take this thorn in the flesh from me." And the Lord said, "No." And in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, it says this. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. When you're weak, Paul, you're going to experience my strength in ways that you just, it's not going to be super Paul anymore. It's going to be weak Paul finding strength from Christ. So Paul goes on to say, therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities and that the power of Christ may rest on me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Dear ones, have you gotten to the point that you can say, I can do all things? I can do all things. Bring it on. Suffering, loss, persecution, death. I can do all things through Christ. Through him, he will give me grace and strength. I'm not afraid to face anything because my faithful friend will be there giving me grace and strength. Oh, dear ones, we have him. He promises he will never leave us or forsake us. Finally, by way of application, let me say this. I need to be merry. I need Jesus' strength. And thirdly, I will learn from Judas's tragedy. Judas had a great start. Judas had enthusiasm. He went and found this preacher from Nazareth. He saw the miracles. He committed himself. He left everything and followed. He was then eventually invited to be one of the 12, one of the, the apostles. And at that point, he lived with Jesus all the time. 
He watched Jesus all the time. He was taught by Jesus. Sometimes he was pulled aside and taught with that group, the 12. And then at one point, he was endowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was sent out with two by two, and he could cast out demons, and he could heal people. Judas casted out demons. Judas healed people. That gift and power of the Holy Spirit was given to him. And, and he had that power, and they came back, and they were excited. And somewhere along the line, this man decayed, sin began to reassert itself. This man became self-centered. This man became money-oriented, and this man eventually turned on Jesus and betrayed him. Dear ones, we need to learn from these things. And I know that there are many of you here who have a rich, rich heritage. Let me speak to the children here, you young people here. I know you children who are here, you have an advantage I never had growing up. You have an advantage I never had growing up. You are being brought up in a Christian home. You have parents that love the Lord Jesus Christ and are pointing. I had great parents, but I was not brought up in what would be known as a Christian home. You were brought up in a Christian home. You have been given the gospel. Your parents have told you about Jesus. Jesus is, is, is an important part of your life. Your parents have opened up the word of God for you. They've brought you to a church where they know Jesus is going to be preached. They, they, you have been given a lot of wonderful things. You have been given so much good. And you have been given a good start. Dear ones, I want to just really urge you children, think about Judas here. Think about this for a second. And it may not necessarily be as radical as Judas because he was part of an overall sovereign plan of God. But there's so many other examples of well, of people who have started off well and have not ended well. People who started off well and squandered their inheritance squandered their heritage, squandered what they've been given. People who have allowed themselves, although growing up as children and having good parents, parents who prayed for them, they saw Jesus, they recognized Jesus, they know that Jesus is good, but then the world drawing them to itself to enjoy its pleasures, to drink of its lusts, to take in its sins, to find its identity there, to, to, to chase after its wealth, to chase after all those things, you find that you allow that to keep drawing you, allow that to keep drawing you, allow that to keep drawing you. And it's drawing you, drawing you further and further away from the gospel light that you had. And it's darkening that light and darkening that light. And then eventually Satan, Satan gets involved very much in this process because he doesn't want you near Jesus. And Satan is an expert liar. And Satan is a, he's a sham artist, and he can lie and make you think that all of these things that you are going to give you true happiness, all of these things are going to make you a person that's, that's really special. All these things are going to distance you from coming, the, 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 the embarrassing things about these Christian people. All of these things are going to be good for you. All of these things are going to be good for you. And he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna try to deceive you and bring friends into your life and do all of this stuff so that the end, you die and go to hell. And you know what it can be said about everybody in hell? It is better, it would have been better for you never to be born. If you go to hell, it would be better if you had never been born, ever. You say, well, pastor, how could I... 
What could I do? You yourself, Pastor, said you were weak. You're telling me that a powerful supernatural devil who has thousands of demons and who's an expert liar is after me? You're telling me that this attractive world is like a seductress and she's seducing me and seducing me and that I have a sinful nature within me that is resonating with this and wants to follow this and, and, and is opposed to God? You're telling me all that. How in the world could I possibly be saved? I'll tell you how you can be saved. Somebody more powerful than all of that. Somebody more powerful than the devil. Somebody more powerful than the world. Somebody more powerful than all of the legions of demons. Somebody more powerful than your sin. The Lord Jesus Christ. He saves. And not only that, does he have the power to save. The power to deliver you from sin. The power to deliver you from the devil. The power to take all of these things upon himself. He wants to save. He's willing to save. He loves to save. He's offering to save you today. He's offering you everlasting life. He, you just need to turn away from all of this stuff. Repent. Turn away from it. I defy all of this. And run into his arms by faith and embrace him like Mary did. And say, you're mine. I trust you. I take you up at all of your promises. Oh, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. I run into your arms. I trust your promise that all who come to you will have everlasting life. I trust you. I believe upon you. I come to you. I'm trusting you. Oh, dear ones, he has the power to not only save, but to hold you and to keep you so that it will never be said about you. Oh, it would be better if he or she was never born. What will be said about you is, Behold, the Lamb of God, and welcome, and become children of the living God through all that he has done, and live forever with him. Oh, may God grant you salvation. May God open your eyes. May he shut the mouth of the devil right now that these truths not be plucked out of your heart. May a powerful work of the Holy Spirit be involved in your life and may you come to know him. Let's pray together. We praise you and we thank you, our great God and Father, that you sent your son. You gave your only begotten son. You loved us so much that you gave us your son. This beautiful, amazing, glorious son you gave to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to earth to save us. And thank you that just common people like us sitting here in this, this little church out here in this cornfields, that the very Son of God has come to us this morning and offered to save. The very Son of God has come here this morning to speak to us through your word. We thank you. We praise you that you are so gracious. You are so kind. You are still so loving to the simplest of people like this dear woman with this oil. Oh, Lord Jesus, we wish we could be more like Mary here. Help us to love you more. We do love you. 
We do love you. We're not going to take that away. We do love you. Help us to just love you more. Help us to know your strength, to know your power, to know your grace in our lives. We just ask you even for strength to love you more. And we're sorry we have to ask that, but you know our frailty. Help us to love you more. Help us to be brave. Help us to be strong. Help us to even face death courageously so that you will be glorified. And Father, I pray for any who are here today who are just feeling the draw of Satan, feeling the draw of the world, feeling just the, the desire to just follow the lies of autonomy and happiness and pleasure the world has to offer. I pray that you will help them to see, hear the warning, and to flee into your precious and wonderful arms and to find everlasting life. Work and move, we pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that when we're weak, you're strong. And when we need salvation, there's one willing to save, able to save. Thank you, resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus. We pray this in your precious name.